Father, we ask your blessing. We pray that you'll be with us in this time that we spend this afternoon. Looking back at uh, events over a long span, we pray that you would help us to somehow sort them out, make sense out of different things here and there, see the threads of truth and of providence that you have woven through our history. Help us to um, know how to build on that which you have erected and that we have so blessedly received by the mere coincidence of the time of our birth and life. We pray that you would guide our thoughts now and grant that beyond thinking we'll find a way to put it into action. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, the first uh, quick challenge I need to address is how much of a recap do I need from last night? Do I have people that, I know I have some who were not here last night. And so um, we will do a very quick recap. How's that? Okay. Uh, very quickly speaking, last night we talked about 1888. That was some years ago. Jones and Wagner, two young ministers, 33 and 38 years old, presenting uh, positions that contrasted in some ways with Brother uh, Butler, George Butler, General Conference President, and Uriah Smith, General Conference uh, Secretary and Editor of the Review and Herald. Um, the brethren in Battle Creek were concerned um, for good and valid reasons, sort of, uh, in that they, they did not think that, you know, they had their opinions. They, they thought this was what was truth, and these guys were saying something that was variant from that, and so that was a source of concern to them. Um, the biggest problem, the biggest challenge of the whole thing, was that the issues, the identification of the law in Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4, and the identification of the ten horns of Daniel, um, seven or eight, I'm forgetting, I'm going blank, you know, whichever chapter it is, uh, ten horns. Um, the problem, of course, is that these were, these were not big issues. These, these were not worth fighting over. And Ellen White said so repeatedly. But there was this compulsion to fight. <laughs> they just they couldn't seem to find a way to, to treat these as minor issues. And the question is why? Why? You know, why? Why why does a little issue become a big issue? And when does that happen? Okay? Um, probably the uh, simplest little thought that I can uh, toss out for your consideration on that one, and I, I'm sorry, I don't have a... Yeah, it's a quote, but I don't know what the reference is. Um, now it says simply that when we are presenting the truth, we can present truth, but we can present even, even you know, the gospel truth, right, can be presented in two ways. It can be presented as God's truth, or it can be presented as our truth truth, okay, and one easy test that she mentioned is if someone disagrees with your presentation of truth, do you take offense? If you take offense, you're not really representing God, you're representing yourself, you know, 
Jesus watched 5,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children walk away one day. And it didn't upset him. He was saddened, but he didn't take offense. I don't know if you can sort that out in your mind. It's a thought that might be of some value. Um, Ellen White, however, went to Minneapolis. She listened to what had to say, said that she disagreed with Wagner on some points, but she felt that he was a Christian gentleman um, and that he did not receive a fair hearing because others were not acting as Christian, Christian gentlemen. And um, this, was, you know, this was an issue. This was a problem. But she also identified something. She said there is something here, and she became very enthusiastic about it. Um, she spoke of it as the matchless charms of Christ. She said this was very important. She said that if the ministers would not receive it, she would bypass them and take it directly to the people, which is, you know, from... Uh, from any organizational point of view, that's 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 serious stuff, you know. That's 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 insurrection, <laughs> practically. Okay, she said, "I will take it to the people," and she did, because there were um, men in positions of, of influence in Battle Creek who weren't interested in what was being presented, and. Certain individuals would have said all along, we're, we're fighting over the important truth of the law in Galatians. Even though it was, it was not that important of a, of a truth. Okay? And I, I tossed out a hypothesis and I gave a number of, of quotations last night that I'm not going to take the time to repeat right now. Um, and so for those of you who are fresh to this discussion, this may seem a little bit weird, but the basic idea was that much of Ellen White's writings in, um, on the subject, you know, they've, they've compiled that four-volume set, the 1888 material set. Okay, it's 1,600 pages, something like that. If you read through that, time after time, you'll find Ellen White associating the, the conflict with Minneapolis with a question of individuals placing men where God should be. Okay? Uh, and I suggested that perhaps as useful a way to look at the issue was not in terms of, of salvation and doctrine, as it would be as, a, as an administrative issue, as a, an organizational authority issue. And I think we closed. Now, I, I probably will be a little confused today because after the meeting last night, I stayed here and talked to some people and I don't remember for sure what I said then and what I said before. So this is, uh, it would be interesting. But anyhow, um, the um, uh, one, one element that I want to bring this back to you because it, it's, to me it's, it's important and for the rest of the presentation it will be important. Ellen White said repeatedly that the message of righteousness by faith was the third angel's message in verity. Okay? And again, the look at the linkage. What is the linkage? In our normal, you know, routine, everyday understanding of righteousness by faith, righteousness by faith is, is justification, is forgiveness. You know? Now, of course, you can get into big, long-drawn arguments, which has been proven in our history, as to whether or not righteousness by faith includes or excludes um, uh, sanctification. You know, is it justification only? Does it include sanctification? And this has been argued at... at length, ad nauseum. Um, but in any case, 
What we normally think of as righteousness by faith, I, I challenge you, what is the, how, how is that the third angel's message in verity? Because the third angel's message is the warning against the mark of the beast. You know, it has nothing to do with all the soft, you know, the nice, fuzzy, pleasant, happy thoughts of Jesus forgives me because I, you know, I, I you know. Those are good thoughts. I'm not, I'm not knocking those. But if that's where we stop, and we say, this was Jones and Wagner's message. It, was, it had to do with the personal salvation of the soul through this, um, you know, uh, discreet process of theological truth and doctrinal presentation. I think we do a severe injustice to their message. Their message went beyond that and included what for want of probably a, a more uh, appropriate term I will, dis I will describe as radical faith a radical faith Okay, um, there were evidently a, a good number of Adventists who frankly didn't know whether or not they could feel like they could claim salvation that you know that God had really forgiven there was a, there was a, a dearth okay and so this this don't take this in any sense derogatorily okay I, I'm, I don't mean it that way but the, the soft fuzzy side it's not that I'm opposed to that side of, of justification okay but there was, that was needed that was needed okay but that's not all there was to it that's not all there was to it by any stretch. And Jones and Wagner were the kind of people who went, uh, went forward and were willing to go forward, and on at least one occasion, which we talked last night, did so inappropriately, right, with their, their initial publication of some of these things. That was a mistake on their part, and they were reproved for that. But they were willing to go forward on nothing more than God say so and that really 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 antagonized some people who were wanting to say no don't and they didn't listen to them <laughs> it's it's sort of frustrating anybody who's been in a, an administrative position with people underneath them you know when you tell them what to do and they don't do it <laughs> and that can be frustrating you know I don't know if you've ever noticed that okay um, and this really became the core issue that developed out of Minneapolis was that Jones and Wagner uh, they did not want them you know, there, there were certain individuals um, they're all dead so, you know, bless them, they're all good men that's one of the scariest things about this okay, let me take a, a brief aside okay. there's the four volume set of Ellen White's comments okay. there's this set Manuscripts and Memories this is all the non-Ellen White materials. So you get all the letters from George Butler and, and uh, Stephen Haskell and uh, Uriah Smith and all that sort of stuff. You know what? When I read this, it scares the socks off of me. Because these guys who I know on the authority of inspired testimony were wrong. They sound so, so believable, so convincing, so rational. You know, they were normal people. Don't ever think, you know, when I'm talking about these these fellows, I hold these people in high regard. I do. Butler, Smith, these were not bad people. I hold them in very high regard, and I frankly don't know that I would ever measure up to their stature. Um, it's kind of scary. Um, but that's true. But Butler, Smith, Van Horn, Morrison... Leroy Nicola, 
um, Captain Eldridge, Frank Belden, um, A.R. Henry, Harmon Lindsay, okay. May not recognize any or all of those. Those are those were that was the power structure in Battle Creek. Those were the movers and shakers in Battle Creek. Not one of them wanted Jones Wagner in Battle Creek. Okay? Because how much do you like somebody who doesn't listen to what you say? <laughs> right? Okay. After the uh, after the Minneapolis meeting, they you know they all kind of went back down to, to Battle Creek. There were certain things that, for legal purposes, had to be finished in Battle Creek, and you know, in Michigan rather than Minneapolis. You got to get in the right state to do certain legal proceedings. Um, and everybody goes back there. Ellen White went to the um, uh, went to the board of elders at the Battle Creek Tabernacle and said, "Hey, why don't you have uh, Brother Jones uh, preach?" And they didn't want him to preach. They just didn't want the guy. She worked on that. And uh, spent about four days in, you know, different contacts and whatnot before she finally got somebody to to give the guy a chance to stand up and, and say his piece there in Battle Creek. Okay, what developed there? And I, I want you to, to kind of get this idea. And, and Ellen White says this explicitly. She says there was a hatred of Jones and Wagner. There was a hatred. She says that those who resisted their message hated them and would have crucified them as the Jews crucified Christ if it had been possible. She said that. Okay. That's pretty harsh. Um, why did they hate these nice young men? Yeah. And again, I go back, I mentioned last night the time that Jones spoke too sharply. Remember? You know, Elder Smith has just said that he doesn't know about this, and I do, so don't blame me for what he doesn't know. That probably exacerbated their tendency to not appreciate him. <laughs> you know? Um, we should all learn, at the very least, to be very guarded in our words. Well, there, there was this, there was this, this opposition this um, this lack of appreciation for Jones and Wagner, and they would say, "It's because I don't trust them on the law and Galatians." Well, you know what? They were not preaching the law and Galatians. That wasn't an issue that they carried on after they left. You know, it really is apparently a very small amount of what was actually discussed in, in Minneapolis. And afterwards, when they left, they, they went on this whole series of campaigns for a year and a half. And I traveled with these two guys for a year and a half. And they weren't talking on the law and Galatians. That wasn't the thing. Okay, so you don't like the law and Galatians, that's fine. But now what is it that you don't like about these guys? If I can put this in my own words, what they didn't like about them was simply that they represented a challenge to the authority system, the structure that they were that they were used to. They were a nuisance. Because they didn't do what they were told. Because they said, I answer to a higher calling. You know, there's lots of people that say that, aren't there? <laughs> How many of them do you enjoy? <laughs> um, I answer to a higher calling. 
It was, however, true. It was, however, true. Um, okay, so we, we dealt with most of that last night. Um, one more incident that I want to bring out, just as, as a, a, a quick example of this sort of thing. In 1893, A.T. Jones, well, in 1893 there was a, a Supreme Court decision, and I, I really don't know the details on this, but the Supreme Court decision was handed down, and Jones and Haskell both looked at that and they said, man, this is serious. It was, it was on a church-state religious liberty type of issue. Okay. And Jones wrote up a series of articles. It, would be, it was like three articles, I think, in the review. They sent it off to uh, you know, um, Uriah Smith, who was the editor of the review. He said, here's an article you may consider for publication. Uh, in that article, what he said was essentially, and, and I'm, I'm going to use his metaphor, he said that this action of the Supreme Court has formed the image to the beast. But it has not breathed life into it. Okay. In other words, like I said, I don't know the details of what it was, but he was saying that that this this decision that the, the Supreme Court had made uh, basically put the pieces in place for religious persecution. Okay. The um, the review printed the article, all three um, installments. In the issue that carried the final installment, Uriah Smith included a uh, letter to the editor to which you know, he responded, in which he took a diametrically opposed position. <laughs> he said, no, I don't really think the Supreme Court issue is that big of an issue. Yeah, don't worry about it. Well, that was wrong. <laughs> Um, if he didn't like what Jones had said, he should have left. You know, he shouldn't have run the article. Okay, it was kind of foolish to do it that way. And what the complaint was is that Jones was too excitable. He was too, you know, got carried away with stuff. Jones had a little bit of a weakness that way, perhaps. Yeah. Ellen White had to, had to counsel him, said, Brother Jones, I understand what you're saying, but you must be careful in how you say it. Sometimes it'll be misunderstood because of the way you say it. Okay. Um, now, it was wrong that, he, um, that, that Uriah Smith treated it in that way. Uh, Alan White wrote him a long letter and explained the whole thing at great length, and that's how I happen to know about the whole circumstance. Um, is uh, you know reading reading the letter. Um, we could look at this, and um, and we could say, well, it's been a hundred and some odd years, and nothing's really happened yet. So who was right, Uriah Smith or A.T. Jones? Yeah, we could say, well, Uriah Smith looks like he was right. Jones was wrong. There you go. End of discussion. Um, Hang on to that thought. I'll come back to it. Okay, I'll come back to that. Um, let's see. I don't. I really haven't done justice to one of the the, the main core of the idea. Um, but I'm going to go ahead for for want of time. I want to just just quickly take you down uh, through the the intervening years as quickly as I can now. Okay. 
Um, Jones and Wagner, okay, 1888, um, and for the next year and a half, they traveled around. In 91, Wagner was sent to England. Ellen White was sent to Australia. Um, kind of an interesting thing there. This, this brings up a, um, a balance, a, a, an interesting and challenging balance that needs to be considered at times. Uh, Ellen White did not receive any light from God that she should go to Australia. God never said, go to Australia. She wasn't sure what to do. The General Conference had asked her to go to Australia. And there's a famous quote, which has you know, been published for many years, in which she said, I had received no light from the Lord, but I regard the voice of the General Conference as, as God's voice, and so I went. And um, I don't believe she was wrong in doing that. However, she also said later on how it wasn't what was supposed to happen. She did the right thing in responding to the to the, the call. Okay, um, she wrote to uh, A. V. Olson or O. A. Olson, I should say, um, General Conference President at the time, and she explained. Um, she said, here you go, I have not, I think, revealed the entire workings that led me here to Australia. Perhaps you may never fully understand the matter. The Lord was not in our leaving America. He did not reveal that it was his will that I should leave Battle Creek. The Lord did not plan this, but he let you all move after your own imaginings. The Lord would have had W.C. White, his mother, and her workers remain in America. We were needed at the heart of the work. And had your spiritual perception discerned the true situation, you would never have consented to the movements that have been made. But the Lord read the hearts of all. There was so great a willingness to have us leave that the Lord permitted this thing to take place. Those who were weary of the testimonies born were left without them. Our separation from Battle Creek was to let men have their own will and way, which they thought superior to the way of the Lord. The result is now before you. She was writing this in 1890. Yeah, I don't have the date on it. It would have been about 1894. Uh, 1894, 5, 6 were really, really low, uh, a, a sad and low point in the work of the, uh, of the church in Battle Creek there. Those are the years, and you will find people that still bring up these quotes about you know who can now trust the voice of the General Conference, there's nothing sacred there, okay? That, that kind of a quote. Those are the years those quotes were made, and, and you'll find people who want to you know, say that, that applies from here on out for eternity, and that's just kind of foolish, but you know, people do that. Um, but those were the years, and, and it, was a, it, was a, it was a bad problem. It was a serious problem. Uh, individuals were placed in positions of authority that Ellen White, again, using language that we don't normally think she, you know, I think of her as, as just being a sweet little old lady, you know, but you know, she described two individuals as bodies of death. There you go, that's a new compliment for your repertoire. Uh, and these two guys, she said they were traveling around, they were, they were general conference vice presidents, they didn't have that 
title back then. That wasn't an official position, but that's the way they were functioning. They were traveling around, and she says, and she, she said to Olson, she says, why do you have these two men, these bodies of death representing the Lord's work and, and, and sowing discord and trouble everywhere they go? Um, and Olson was afraid to fire them. She said, you, you refuse to take action lest there be an explosion. You know, it's, the Lord's work is, uh, is not immune from organizational issues, shall we say. Anyhow, so it was, a, it was a tough time. During that time, well, okay, after that time, Ellen White was in Australia. Uh, Wagner was in Europe. This trio that had been traveling around had, had been effectively split up. Jones was in the United States um, and receiving a fair amount of flack, although he was given... Uh, a good opportunity to speak is, is kind of an interesting thing. Those who want to say, oh no, there never really was a problem, and everybody loved A.T. Jones, they'll, they'll point to how often he spoke. And he was given lots of opportunities to speak. But there was never any, any heartfelt, you know, there, there was no love lost there, <laughs> okay? And Jones was an abrasive character at times. It's a shame. We don't always represent Christ properly. Um, and then there were problems, one thing or another. Well, okay. Eventually, and some, Ellen White said, uh, fairly early on, she said, it's possible that one or the other of these men who have run well, you know, worked for the Lord, they may, they may lose their way. She makes an interesting comment. She says, if that should happen, how many there would be who would make the fatal, who come to the fatal conclusion that they had not spoken for God in the past? This is a fatal conclusion. Well, as it turned out, they both lost their way. Um... Now, there are those who uh, will grasp at what I consider to be optimistic straws and, and like, to, like to maintain that they both you know, had effectively deathbed conversions or something. You know? uh, and that's great. I'm all in favor. You know, if they're in heaven, if I ever happen to get there myself, I'll be happy to have them. You know, it's great. Glad to have you guys. You know? It doesn't look promising. Let's <laughs> just be honest. They, they kind of wandered. Okay. Um, really set things back. We do that to the Lord sometimes. We set back the work that, that He's been carrying forward. Not much happened on the subject of 1888 righteousness by faith um, through, the, um, through the presidency of A.G. Daniels. Daniels had to deal with these two guys. Okay, Daniels was elected president in 1901, uh, served until 1921, I think it was, something like that, the longest term of any general conference president. Um, and he had to deal with them. And Jones was a major pain in his neck at times. And Wagner was not quite as abrasive, but yeah, wasn't always nice. Um, but when when Daniels resigned, or you know, when he was uh, relieved of this position, I mean, you know, he basically retired. Okay. Um, a, a few years later, he went back in his mind. He went back to that issue of 1888, and he said. There was something there. There was something there. He wrote this little book. Um, it's entitled Christ Our Righteousness. The exact same title as the book that Wagner had written. Uh, but anyhow. Um, it came out in 1927, I believe it was, something like that. Yeah, no copyright date. Um, and, um, and it's an interesting little book. And, and the whole thing is devoted to a, a resurrection, shall we say, of the issues of 1888. And saying, 
this message came. Now, I said this before today, but you know, aside from being the third angel's message in very, you know, I'd also identified the message at that time as the beginning of the loud cry. And Daniel said, that's, a, that's, that's an important thing. It was the beginning of the loud cry. It didn't end, but it was the beginning. There's something of value there that we, we've, got to, we've got to regain this. And that was his basic, um, his basic premise. And, and Daniel's is quite clear, as, as you read through his, his little book here, you know, that, that the church did not avail itself of the opportunity that was presented in 1888. And his, his whole book here is, is really uh, a plea. He's saying, let's figure this out. Let's go back. Let's, let's understand this. Now his focus in the book is almost solely on the, the shall I say, the theoretical, doctrinal, whatever uh, issue of righteousness by faith in the normal sense that we think of it. The, the justification forgiveness process. Okay, The acceptance of Christ's righteousness, learning not to count on our own righteousness, these type of things. Okay, That's, that's what he, he covered. And he said, there's something here that we have never really gotten hold of entirely. Um, let's see here. The, um, the issue then promptly more or less died for, um, I guess it was 1926 that Daniel's book came out. Um, for the next 19 years, nothing more was published or really agitated or said on the issue. Okay? In 1945, uh, another book came out. I'm going to trace this right now in terms of publications. It's just the easiest way to put dates on things. Okay? This particular book was by uh, a gentleman by the name of Norval Peace. And um, it was, well actually it wasn't a, even a book. At that point it was just an unpublished, um, like a master's thesis, on justification and righteousness by faith in the Seventh-day Adventist Church before 1900 was the official title. And that's, the, that's the next major thing that came up on the issue. And in his work, Peace said something interesting and, and different from what Daniels had said. Daniels basically said, we had a golden opportunity and we, never, we didn't capitalize on it. We missed it. We need to recover that. Peace took a, a little different approach, vastly different approach, and he said, uh, a great message came to us in that year and uh, it was a great blessing to the church and we've been building on it ever since. That's a different assessment. Okay. In 1947, we have another book, The Fruitage of Spiritual Gifts. Uh, these are major works, you know, um, more or less. Um, uh, but the book only had one chapter dealing with Minneapolis, Righteousness by Faith, 26 pages. And in that book, the author basically said the same thing as peace, that uh, this is a great message and we've been building on it ever since. In 1949, uh, another book, Captains of the Host, um, more or less said the same thing. In 1950, a significant thing happened. <laughs> kind of interesting. Um, trying to tell you that story as quickly as I can here. Um, in 1950, two relatively young missionaries were back in the United States from their mission service in Africa. And uh, they had a, a series of, of 
events, circumstances, that they were here for a, a I think it was like a nine-month furlough or something like that. And during that time, their plan was to uh, take some college classes, and then at the end of you know at this end of the college term in the spring, they were going to go off to San Francisco to the general conference, and then they'd go back to Africa. Okay. Um, <clears throat> One of these, well, this was uh, Donald Short and uh, Robert Wieland. Okay, some of you probably would have known those names already. Don't think this is a great surprise to anybody. Um, there was uh, there was some interesting things that had happened. Let's see if I can find that section real fast. Robert Wieland had been um, had been referred to in his before he went to Africa. He'd been referred to a book by E.J. Wagner. The uh, Glad Tidings, Wagner's book on Galatians. And he'd never had a copy of the book, but he'd sat down and typed two chapters of the book from his college professor's copy. And he took them with him to Africa. And while in Africa, he found that um, they were useful to him, very useful. He, he got over there, and he was very concerned with the prevailing laxity in sexual morality amongst the native population. And he was told by the administrators, this is just this is part of the culture, there's nothing you can do to change it, you're just going to have to live with it. And he said, no, I can't accept that. You know, there's, there's, there's something about God's law that's, that's applicable everywhere. We, we have to deal with this somehow. And he found in these two chapters an approach that he felt was certainly more successful than abandoning the issue. Um, and it addressed the issue of how do you now, how does the believer gain victory over sin? That was the basic thing. And he preached that. And at least he you know, made some inroads into the problem that he was facing over there. Okay, so then he came back on this furlough and went to take a class. Um, he actually signed up for a class at the Washington Seminary uh, on righteousness by faith. Um, Oh, let's see, how can I uh, get through this as quickly as I can? Um, I'll just have to read some of this. How's that? Um, what, what he was learning in his class didn't, didn't exactly coincide with what he was understanding from Wagner's book on Galatians. And so he went to the, uh, the dean of the school at the time and shared his concerns. Um, Actually, not the dean, the president. He went to the president of the seminary and shared his concerns. Um, now, this is only one side of the story. I just have to caution you. You know, history is a fun game, but it's always nice if you can hear both sides. And I, I don't have both sides in this particular one. Okay, this is um, this is the story basically coming from Wieland's side of it. And I, you know, I think it's probably you know, pretty accurate, but I don't know. After sharing his concerns, he was shocked when the president of the university or the seminary told him that he must leave the seminary immediately. Gone. Done. The uh, president drove him straight over to his seminary apartment and began helping him check out. He even went so far as to check to make sure that the dishes he took did not belong at the apartment. Mrs. Wheland was, of course, in shock and horrified at what had happened, as was Robert Wheland himself. Um... When asked what he had said to make the 
president of the seminary takes such a drastic and urgent action, Wieland insists he made no demands, nor said anything severe or personal. It was just his observation that the class he was taking did not agree with Wagner's message, Unrighteous My Faith. At the time, Wieland said he did not know anything about 1888, and he assumed that Wagner's view was accepted, because it had been recommended to him by his professor some years before from CUC. Um, well, so now Robert Wieland had more time on his hands. <laughs> any college students here feel, or university students feel like you have more time if you weren't taking any classes? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so he began trying to figure this all out. Um, he went, since he didn't have uh, anything to do there, uh, he decided he would try and, and do some studying at the Ellen G. White estate. Um, I can find that little account. Um, he went and um, and began studying there. Um, the first day he went there, um, here we go. Uh, when Wieland asked to see Ellen White's 1888 comments, the gentleman who was in charge at the time told him that that topic was controversial, so access was not usually given to that file. He asked for Wieland's credentials. Wieland replied that he was a general conference delegate. That was true. He you was know, going to go to the general conference. And he was a missionary from Africa. And also that he knew, I'm leaving some names out here just for the simplicity of life, he also knew the, uh, the gentleman at the White Estate. He knew his son who was in Africa too. Uh, as a result of that, he was given access to the file. Yeah, that's nice. Um, as soon as Wieland began reading Ellen White's statements about h and &E and her endorsements of Wagner, and these are not the words I would use, I'm reading this for now, he knew he had discovered a scandal of major proportions. Ah, that's a little overblown, but you know, the guy was, was writing this up, he's got to you know, sell some papers too. Um, he got permission to bring up his typewriter and he sat there and he began copying as many letters as he could until the White Estate closed that evening. He left his typewriter there and came in again the next morning to continue. But when he was met at the door, uh, he was told that a mistake had been made and that he could not have the same file back. He was offered another file, however, containing much information on 1888, which happened to be all the raw material for testimonies to ministers, but he already had a copy of the book, so he didn't really need to go through the file. And so that door was, was shut as well. The reason I mention this is because I just want you to, to understand that there was a time period during which it was, um, I don't know, a minor degree of paranoia or something, you know. We got really defensive on this issue. Just kind of collectively, we did. You know? I don't know why, but that's what happened. Um, Wieland instead went down to where he had some relatives in Florida and spent his time down there and did as much studying as he could. And he tried another approach, being a resourceful kind of a guy, and this was being only 1950. He started writing to every old Adventist minister he could get an address for, and he said, hey, do you know anything about 1888? Do you have any Ellen White letters? No. I'd really like a copy of all that. This was pre-Xerox machine. Yeah. What a pain. Can you imagine living without a photocopier? It was like, that'd be grim. Anyhow, um, so they started sending him all this stuff, and he's going, he's going over all this, and he's becoming more and more concerned, and he's saying, we don't have the message of 1888. We don't have it. We've got to get it. Now, there was an unfortunate decision, I, I think. I'm, you know, I have my book, Hindsight. Yeah. 
hindsight is twenty twenty type of thing. Okay. I'm not saying I would have ever done anything smarter than any of these guys. But looking back, sometimes it's easier to say, well, I think that was a mistake. Okay. Looking back, I would say, I think they made a mistake right there because they clamped up on all this information. You know, and it creates... Ooh, you know? Oh, suspenseful music, you know, it's, it's like, ah, there's a, there's a conspiracy going on here type of thing. I don't think there was any conspiracy. I think there was maybe a little paranoia. I think there was some bad decision making. Conspiracy, oh, come on, please give me a break. But it, it kind of seemed that way, you know? And, and what Wieland was saying at this point was, man, We've got to get everything out of the vaults. We need to find out what Ellen White really said. We need to we need to rediscover and, and re uh, you know whatever reclaim the access to this this glorious message that came in 1888 that we didn't ever capitalize on. Well, time rolled around and finally went to the general conference session. And as circumstances would have it. The theme of the general conference session that year was righteousness by faith. Hey, what a coincidence. Wheland and his good friend Donald Short wrote a letter to the general conference on about the, I don't know what day of the conference it was. Um, I will uh, read this. This is by Dennis Okama. I don't know if anybody knows Dennis Okama, but anyhow. Um, Here's, here's, here's his lead up to the letter. Even today, in the age of shock jocks and frankness of speech that would have shocked earlier generations, that fateful four-page letter by Robert J. Whelan and Donald K. Short that launched a thousand books and articles loses none of its thunder. Okay, a little melodramatic. Dear brethren, on this day of fasting and prayer, we as a people are to seek not to the God of Ekron, but to the God of truth, the author and finisher of our faith. The president, president of general conference, president stirring address last night, calling upon us to guard the faith once delivered to the saints and to speak forthrightly in defense of it presents a challenge. With this in mind, it is imperative that we know exactly what it is that should be guarded. For certainly there is great confusion in our ranks today. This confusion was evident in the, quote, Christ-centered preaching urged upon us repeatedly in the ministerial association meetings of the past four days. He drops down a little bit here. I'm dropping down. However, in the confusion... It has been discerned that much of this so-called Christ-centered preaching is in reality merely anti-Christ-centered preaching. <laughs> oh, man, that's not tactful. <laughs> uh, yeah. And these two young missionaries from Africa fired off a letter that said, you know, guys, really what we're into is a lot of Baal worship. You know what Baal means? You know what the word Baal means? It means Lord. Yeah. That's what it means, you know? It means Lord. Right? But there was the Lord and then there was Baal. Okay? And their point was the names are, are really the same. Actually, the Lord sometimes used. You remember Baal Perizim, where the Lord broke forth? That's a reference to God. They used the name Baal. Yeah? And so Wheelan and Short, they said, you know, we've got a lot of confusion here. And we've got, we've got people that are teaching a message of righteousness by faith that really isn't, it's not right. It's not the right thing. This is, this is a bad situation. We're going to attend to this, okay? Well, 
yes. Um, they received a letter back saying, we really don't understand your point of view at all. We don't really share that point of view. We'd like to, uh, like to talk to you people about this. We're not sure that you need to go back to Africa. Maybe I'll look for a new job, basically is what it amounted to. And so Wheeler and Short took six weeks, I think it was, and they typed out a, oh, I forget, something like, um, that's right here, what is it? A 204-page legal-size manuscript. Okay? They typed this thing up. They made no photocopiers. Now we're talking um, carbon paper. Okay, they made 12 copies of this thing. You know, wham, wham, wham. You know, trying to make some mushy little letter. You know, how many of you have no idea what carbon paper is? I'm just curious here. You know, I asked my kids that in school the other day, and they all put their hands up. What is it? You know, so, oh man, <laughs> where have you guys been all your life? Anyhow, um, but um, yeah, they never heard of carbon paper. Yeah. Yeah, just put on a scanner. Yeah, do some OCR. <laughs> right. Anyhow, um, so they made 12 copies, I think it was, and they sent these 12 copies off to what was known, how do we pick names like this? It was called the Defense Literature Committee. <laughs> That's a real user-friendly sounding name. But anyhow, the Defense Literature Committee of the, of the General Conference, okay. Somebody leaked a copy. Wheeling and Short, you know, to this day, Swear, truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth, that they didn't do it. I think I know who did it, but I'm not sure. Uh, let's just say that there was a secretary at the General Conference who um, has taken a great interest in the subject ever since. Um, and, <laughs> and I'm guessing that probably somehow she arranged to, to leak a copy to, of all people, a young medical student out at Loma Linda, who was at that point engaged in the process of trying to become engaged. Um, and he and his significant other spent many hours of their engagement typing the manuscript onto stencils, mimeograph stencils, which could produce eh, about a thousand copies before they all fell apart, right? The old crank, 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 mimeograph, okay? Well, Whelan and Short have said, we didn't do that, we, I don't know, I, I trust them, I believe them, I don't, you know, okay. But all of a sudden this, this manuscript, 204 page manuscript, is in the field, shall we say, okay? Um, it was entitled, 1888 Reexamined. Um, and it's been republished any number of times. This is my personal copy of it here, including a few other things, uh, the responses to it, okay? So they sent this off to the, the, the committee, and the committee said, we see no light in your, your manuscript. But, um, you know, we, we want you to be quiet about this. And we went in short because they have a very, you know, and I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't fault these guys, I admire them. Uh, I'm not sure I would have done the same thing, I don't, I don't know, if I were in their place. But they have a very high sense of the authority of God's properly delegated you know, church. Okay? And so the church said, we don't want you to agitate this. And they said, we won't. And they went back to Africa. Um, <clears throat> but by this time it was in the field. And it was an issue. And it was being hashed and rehashed and discussed and you know, chewed, chewed on, right? In 1958, the General Conference came out with another little work entitled Further Appraisal of the Manuscript 1888 Reexamined. 
49 pages, which basically said, we learned short or wrong. Now, the message was accepted, everything's fine, just sit back and relax. Okay. Um, we learned short, they're kind of interesting guys. Very interesting guys. Yeah. They have this very high sense of the authority of God's church, and at the same time, and I don't say this in any, in any sense disrespectfully, but they uh, they're pretty good at playing a kind of a brinkmanship game with the thing. Okay, and and to them it was, hey, we were quiet for eight years, but now you have raised the question again. We will at least respond to your further concerns. And so they wrote an answer to further appraisal of the manuscript 1888 re-examined. This mimeographed document of 70 pages was uh, sent off to the general conference officers. And uh, again it was leaked to the public. Um, and they simply maintained their position. You know, they said, we, we love you brethren. We're thankful that you feel that our manuscript was worthy of further appraisal after eight years. Um, you know, uh, we still don't agree with your conclusion, but we respect you, we love you, and we are members of God's church. So, okay. In 1962, another book came out by Norval Peace. This one is entitled "By Faith Alone," and it was really a reworking of his 1945 manus, uh, master's thesis. And basically, it said the message was accepted, and we've been building on it ever since. In 1966, a book came out by A.V. Olson. It was entitled Through Crisis to Victory, 1888 to 1901. It had a new thesis, in a sense. It said that, yes, there was a crisis of acceptance at 1888, but that it was all resolved 13 years later at the General Conference Session of 1901. So, hence the title, Through Crisis to Victory. And since 1901, we've accepted the message we've been building on ever since. In 1969, Norval Peace wrote another book, The Faith That Saves, a uh, smaller thing, 64 pages, um, that basically is a condensation of his previous work. In 1971, Leroy Edwin Froome wrote a book of 700 pages entitled The Movement of Destiny. And the movement of the title is the movement of righteousness by faith. So the whole book was devoted to the topic. And Froome... Um, goes to, um, you know, well, 700 pages, considerable links, uh, documenting and, and developing his, his concept that the message of righteousness by faith was accepted and we've been living happily ever since. Okay, and it is, it's marching on, it's a movement of destiny and it will eventually triumph in great glory. What's interesting is that Fum cites as his, the inception of his, his work, uh, a call from Daniels. He said, 40 years ago, in 1930, A.G. Daniels commissioned me as a young man. He said, I want you to study this all out and publish it. And so Froome said, you know, that was a sacred char charge from A.G. Daniels. It was you know, no longer General Conference President, but, uh, you know, an elder statesman of the church, whatever. And so now, after 40 years, I finally completed this. The interesting thing is that Froome's thesis was diametrically opposed to Daniels. That might create, you know, a little cognitive dissonance if someone wanted to try and process that. Um, an interesting thing happened about this time. Let's see if I can find this one really quickly. In, in this particular um, work, 
um, Froome made a, um, an interesting comment. Um, gotta find it. Froome, without mentioning Whelan and Short by name, cited you know, their works and mentioned their concerns on the, on the question. Had it been accepted, had it not been accepted, etc., that sort of stuff. And he said essentially that they were lying. He was, he was pretty clear in his, his you know, evaluation of them. He said that they're, they're, they're lying. They are practicing deception, they are distorting, they are doing this out of deliberate maliciousness. And he said, and that was, that was paraphrased, but he said um, that an explicit confession is due the church for what they've done. And Whelan and Short, again with this high sense of the authority of the church, said we have been called upon to confess. We can do nothing but respond. It's this kind of an interesting counter, you know, play and counterplay going on here, okay? Because the last, the absolute last thing Whelan had in mind was, that, or excuse me, that Froome had in mind was that Whelan, in short, would, would write, you know, anything on the topic, okay? Well, hence another little book. Uh, Coincidentally, probably can't read it. Coincidentally, entitled "An Explicit Confession Do the Church." Okay. <laughs> like, there's some games you cannot play and, and win. You know, it's just it's just kind of a, a strange thing going on with all this. Um, let's see. The uh, the interesting thing about this is that he they go through. And I'd, I'd like to read someone else's assessment of this rather than just give you my own, although I would try to say the same thing. Um, where is that? My apologies again. I really should get this all marked up. So the problem is I haven't done this in this particular order before. <coughs> okay. When Wheeler and Short responded to that challenge in November of 1972 with a paper entitled An Explicit Confession to the Church, um, it was not uh, beneficial to Froome's position. I'm going to paraphrase there because of some other stuff that had been... It would just involve too much trying to explain it right now. Okay. Their little 64-page pamphlet with the above title begins by carefully outlining the history of their dialogue with the church that culminated in Froome's challenge. Then Whelan and Short begin their response to Movement of Destiny by reminding Froome of the logical ground rules he had agreed to. The two authors of 1880 Exam, this is a quote now from this little book. The two authors of 1880 Exam and the author of Movement of Destiny agree that decisive spirit of prophecy testimony constitutes the determining factor in arriving at the truth of this matter as had been stated on page 358 of Froome's work. Therefore, what must be settled is the inclusion or exclusion of decisive spirit of prophecy testimony that is vital and relevant. By leaving out certain key testimony, it becomes impossible to understand correctly the meaning of post-1888 Seventh-day Adventist history. The church will insist on seeing and must see that decisive spirit of prophecy testimony. The two authors, we then short, then proceed to unleash pages and pages and pages of excerpts from devastating Ellen White statements Froome has conveniently left out of his 700-page tome. 
which, if accepted at face value, appear to contradict every point that Froome has established inductively through the cumulative testimony of non-inspired church leaders. What Hokama has established, and I think it was, a, it was a helpful thing in the, in the discussion, is he, he makes the case and he says, Wheelan and Short were operating from one kind of logic, a deductive logic. I think I might make sure I say this the right way. And that, um, yes, deductive logic. And to them, they said, this is the spirit of prophecy. This is inspired. It is always correct. It never contradicts itself. Okay? Now, you may or may not accept those two premises, but Froome accepted those premises. And so what that means is that if I have a single statement right here on any issue from this, this accepted inspired source, I need no additional statements. I've got it. If I, I, just, I have a clear statement that nails one point. Any other statement is not going to contradict it. It might add to it. It might, you know, fill in some details or something. But you're never going to find something that contradicts it. Froome was working inductively. And consistently in writing to Whelan and Short and writing about them, he says, I have had the advantages of being able to go over all this vast source of material, among which was the spirit of prophecy in greater extent than, than Wheeler and Short have had access to. I've had the advantage of talking to this guy and talking to this guy and reading this guy's account and doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this and also the spirit of prophecy materials. And so what Flynn did is he made the spirit of prophecy, you know, another factor in the general accumulation of data. Wheeler and Short said, no, it's the only determinant source in a discussion. Now you can, you can choose any form of logic you want to, but these two, the, you know, Wheeler and Short on one hand, Froome on the other, had two different forms of logic. And, and Froome never seemed to grasp that. And, and, and the poor guy, you know, I, I, I kind of feel sorry for him to some extent. Um, he, was, um, he was always beating his head against this, this impenetrable wall of this deductive logic of Wheeler and Short. They, they had the final answer, you know. Well, oh, so you found a letter from, you know, uh, some guy who was a delegate there and he said something different? Well, that's easy. He's wrong. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, now, that could be frustrating to, to try and, and reason against that, okay? Uh, now, I, you know, I'll be honest, I lean more that more towards the Wheeler and Short approach to the spirit of prophecy than I do to the other. Um, but I've known people on both sides of that issue, and uh, trust me, to try and carry on a, uh, uh, an argument from the two opposite sides is not a productive thing, because you're working on from two totally different premises, and you, you've got no common ground to build on. Okay, so it's kind of an interesting analysis. It was rather helpful. Um, <clears throat> well, they got this thing printed up, and. Um, first person they gave it to was um, Robert Pearson. And Pearson did something that I think was perhaps very kind. You could debate whether it was the right thing or the wrong thing. He pled with him, don't publish it. Don't publish it. Froome would die if he ever read it. Elder Froome was in poor health at the time. He did die six months later. He never read it. It was, you know, at Pearson's request, they kept it under wraps until after Elder Froome had, had died. Um, 
Well, that was the early 70s. Then it really took off. Um, and some of you will at least recognize the names in this time period. You know, uh, some of you have heard of Robert David Brinsmead. That was really in the 60s, but he did a complete about-face in the 70s on, on this issue and others. Uh, Desmond Ford got involved. Um, Herb Douglas uh, got involved. They had the big, uh, they had big sessions, big meetings. You know, Margaret Davis was very prominent for a period of time uh, in this discussion. Um, Wheeling and Short, of course, um, and. Uh, who else can't think of who all else? Uh, Laurendell was involved. Hans Laurendell. Uh, they had the Palmdale Conference in 1976 where they brought all these people together and tried to hash it out. What is justification? What is righteousness by faith? How does this work? Da, 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 da. And they were, you know, slicing, dicing, and, you know, just, you know, all sorts of analysis and parsing out of fine details, etc., etc. Um, after Palmdale, this is about the time where I, you know, actually had brain cells that started talking back and forth to each other. And, um, the, uh, this, this is my first memories of, of this whole process now. This is the Palmdale Conference in 76. And uh, as soon as the conference was over, uh, Desmond Ford uh, jumped the gun, basically, and he published this glowing report. He says, ah, the Palmdale Conference agrees with me. Yay! You know, and everybody who liked his particular position on the issue, they were you know, dancing in the streets and celebrating. And then about a week and a half or two later, the review actually published the consensus statement, which was written up at the end of Palmdale. No, I didn't agree with Ford precisely. Uh, he'd overstated his case. Consensus statements, just in case you haven't realized, by nature hardly ever decide anything. <laughs> and this particular one was no exception. Uh, but it did not provide the un unqualified support that Desmond had, had, had said that you know, he was going to get. Um, the issue of, of righteousness by faith and the whole justification process, waxed eloquent argument back and forth, uh, one thing and another, suddenly was overshadowed in 1979 when Desmond Ford um, gave his speech at PUC in which he said, I haven't believed the sanctuary doctrine for the last 30 years. 30 years? 20 years. Take your pick. I don't remember. Um, that's kind of tough. What do you do with a guy like that? You know, he's been teaching it and whatnot. And, you know, he says now, he says, I haven't believed it for 20 years. So you have your choice. He was either lying before or he's lying now. Pick your pick. Um, somewhere he's lying. Yeah. Well, so then we had 1980. We had the uh, Glacier View Conference in, in uh, Colorado where they analyzed all of Ford's prophetic stuff. They, didn't, they weren't dealing with righteousness by faith here because this the whole issue you know, overshadowed it entirely at the time. And that's when Desmond Ford's ministerial credentials were taken from him because of his positions on prophecy and prophetic interpretation and, and uh, the sanctuary and, and related topics. Um, and then, of course, the 80s, and it came up to 1888, the 100-year anniversary type of thing. Yeah, 1988. It came up to 1988. Yeah, a century off here and there. It came up to 1988, the 100-year anniversary, and, you know, the only guys who are still alive and still on their feet, I mean, after everybody, there's all this, this massive pillow fight, the only ones who were on their feet were wheeling and short, you know? And, and they'd, they'd outlived, like, three general conference presidents in this process already, you know. It's, just, it's, 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 it's humorous, it really is. It's just kind of funny. Um, and, and somebody back at the White Estate made a, a marvelous decision. I, I, I 
think it was uh, like 50 years late, but it was better late than never. They said, hey, I bet we could defuse a lot of this concern if we just published everything. Well, there's a thought. And so, and so that's when that four-volume set on the um, uh, you know, Ellen White 1888 materials was published. 1,600 pages of you know, all sorts of stuff. Okay, and it's also when when this this book was published with all the it has Willie White's notes and it has uh, you know everything from the General Conference bulletin from that year. It has some guy's diary who was a, a delegate there. It's a lot of really boring stuff, you know. Um, it's amazing. It's it's like you produce enough boring stuff and, and the conspiracy theories go away. You know, it's like crossing the international border. I learned that when I lived in Canada. You know, just bore them to death. You come up to the you know, are you bringing anything in the country? Well, let's see. Yes, I bought some socks. I've got two pairs of socks. I'm bringing in. Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. We, we're bringing up some home canning. I think it's about twelve. Is it twelve? Is it twelve jars? Something? Yeah. yeah, it's twelve jars of paper. About that. Go on. <laughs> you don't want to argue with these people. You just want to bore them to death and get over the border. Okay. Anyhow, um, out of you know, I don't know the exact date, but that was about the time, give or take, the, the late eighties is when the 1888 Message Study Committee formed and, and began, you know, um, I'd say agitating, that has a, some negative connotation, but, you know, promoting and, and drawing attention to the issue. And, um, you know, we've gone through another decade and a half or something from then, and, and, and here we are. That's an amazing thing. And it's been a long time since 1888. The loud cry began. Some of us would say it's been going on ever since. Just hold your breath, and it'll you know, culminate any day now. I don't mean to be facetious. Um, I think that's a harder and harder position to maintain. I think that probably most of us would have to admit that it began, but something fell short. Something didn't carry through. God began the process that could have, should have, culminated in final events. Which takes me back real quickly to um, the issue of the Supreme Court decision there in 1893. That leaves an interesting question, you know. Was Jones right? Was Uriah Smith right? If the church had responded properly, maybe Jones would have been right. Do you follow what I'm saying, you know? If, 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 if the message that was the beginning of the loud cry had progressed to the end of the loud cry, that Supreme Court decision may well have, have appeared much more significant than it does, you know, 110, 12, 11 years later, you know. Right now we'd look at that, well, frankly, right now we wouldn't look at it. <laughs> it's lost in history and you probably never heard of it until I brought it up today, okay. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe if we'd done the the right thing if we had followed on and I, no, hey I wasn't there right but speaking corporately if we had done the right thing um, yeah maybe Jones would have been right maybe he would have been right it has been a long and contentious history and I'd like to toss out for you once again the only thing that I know that I think I know that makes any sense to me. We have spent a great deal of time and effort trying to identify 
the unique doctrinal contribution of Jones and Wagner. And this was Robert Whelan's concern and, and Donald Short's concern. You know, is that we have all this information that's in the vault. We don't know what it is. Someplace in there is this... I'm not being disrespectful here, but you know, this, this, this magic bullet truth. There's, there's something there that has got to get out of the vault. Okay? This is what led to the, you know, the feeling of conspiracy. So they're holding back on us the, the most important message in the world. Now that's, that's, that's a pretty good conspiracy. Yeah. Outranks who shot JFK. Um, and uh, for, what, 22 years now, the vaults have been cleaned out. We've, we've got that four-volume set. That's, that's everything that they've been able to find. Um, you, know, you can move it up a notch and say, it's a real conspiracy. They're lying to us. Oh, please, cut me some slack. Okay, you, know, you, you can do that if you want to. Okay? I, I accept. I, I think the president of the White Estate have done their level best to issue everything that they found that Ellen White ever said on the 1888 And the ongoing frustration has been, I can't find the doctrinal point. You know, it's really interesting. You read what George Butler wrote on Righteousness by Faith, and you know what the difference between what he wrote and what Jones wrote on the subject was? Broadly speaking, nothing. These guys weren't legalists. You know, Butler never once wrote an article or gave a sermon that said, now listen, boys and girls, if you're really, really, really good, you can earn your way to heaven. He never did that. He didn't believe that. Did he believe that you know our salvation depends on Christ? Yes, he believed that. He wrote that, and you know, can't read his mind, right? He wrote that. He preached that. Did he say that um, our works were uh, as you know of, of no value towards our salvation? Yeah, he said that too. Yeah, what else could he say? Yeah. He, said all, he said all the right things. He said all the right things. You won't find, and, and what's really fascinating is as you go reading through this book in particular, where you have you know, one uninspired person offering his opinion or his assessment of another uninspired person in the, all these personal letters, you know, there's nobody saying, this guy's a legalist. Nobody says that. What they do say is, is, is very, it, it's, it's frustrating in its ambiguity. They say things like, um, brother so-and-so confessed his role at Minneapolis and came out forcefully on the right side. Side? Side of what? The only dividing lines that were in existence really at that point were essentially personal. To come out on the right side means to say, hey, yes, I feel now that I can be in harmony with the work of Jones and Wagner. Not the theological differences, because there weren't any theological differences. There was a difference, however. And here is the difference. And this is, again, the difference that Ellen White identifies time after time after time. Those who are on the wrong side, okay, and Ellen White uses that term, so you know, I'm not too far out of whack in saying it. 
Those who were on the wrong side were all very defensive and offended by Jones and Wagner. Basically, and this is my evaluation, I, and I'm telling you this because I have a compulsion to uh, you know, full revelation or full uh, you know, whatever. Um, you have to evaluate this one. Okay? The best way to do that is to pick up this book and the other four books and just read through it for yourself. It's, you know, it's, hey, you guys that study medicine, yeah, you could probably do that in three nights. It took me a lot longer than that. Um, you're used to it, right? Uh, 800 pages test tomorrow. <laughs> Got it. No problem. Okay. Um, but, uh, but you read through that, and the difference is essentially that the, the wrong side had taken offense. They felt that Jones and Wagner were opposed to either them personally or what they knew as this, the, the structure of the church. Okay? They, they looked at this and these young upstarts from California are challenging the general conference president. Now, just stop and think for a minute. And I don't know, I can't tell you for sure, that anyone ever followed this exact train of thought. But suppose I'm a... Um, Suppose my name is um, Kilgore, and I'm the president of the Iowa conference. Who's my boss? Okay, that was a tough question. George Butler is <laughs> a general conference president. is my boss. Okay, and along comes some whippersnapper from California who's attacking my boss. Now. What's at stake for me? What's at stake for me? Yeah. And time after time, Ellen White makes these comments. Don't decide this issue because, based on what one man says. This is, you know, I never was more alarmed in my life and that we would put this on hold because Brother Butler's in, in Battle Creek, she said. You know? That Elder Butler, had, uh, men had placed him where God alone should be. Um, and on and on and on. When we place human beings, any human being, not just some, you know, conference officer, and don't get me wrong, I'm not picking on conference officers, it's just that that's the story happens to center on. When we place any human being where God alone should be, we are defenseless. We're in the wrong boat. We're in the wrong camp. We're headed the wrong direction. We have severed ourselves from God. That's what she said. We read this, all these statements last night. This, through this method of, of indirect influence, there is no influence. Remember that one? Okay. Um, this is the great sin that is coming in amongst his people. It's placing men where, where God should be. Um, allowing a, a dictation of conscience. Remember the special wisdom? Read that one last night. Now, it may be argued that God gives special wisdom to those whom have been called to fill sacred responsibilities. It is true. He does give special wisdom. And if the human agent walks humbly with God, etc., 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 God will give him the special wisdom to point them, to point everyone to someone else other than himself. That's the special wisdom. I like that one. It's kind of an interesting quote. Okay. That's the special wisdom. Um, we have lost that. And it... It, in this particular story, 
it's, it's, it's very personalized because we're talking a, a fairly small number of people. You know? And you've got Uriah Smith and you've got George Butler and Morrison and whatnot. And you've got these personalities involved. I would like to submit to you that the same thing can easily be done not with individuals but with, with anything else that we're willing to place where, where God should be. Anything else that gets in the way of God's perfect liberty to tell us, do this, and we do it. What Jones and Wagner, this is my summation here, what Jones and Wagner offered the church more than any other one thing was a radical faith that was faulty at times. They made a serious mistake in 93. I'm going to tell you this story too. And I don't want you to think that you know I'm some sort of you know blind worshiper of Jones and Wagner. They got carried away. They made a serious mistake in their in their understanding of faith, and specifically as it related to healing. And for a period of time, possibly through the influence of another individual, but I'll save that story. Uh, possibly, you know, somewhat through the influence of another individual. For a period of time in '93, about uh, I'd guess maybe five weeks, maybe six, seven weeks, something like that. They really, they 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 took a position that said faith can be certain. You can pray with certainty, and know that you have, and they quoted certain Bible verses, you know, you know that you have what you ask. Uh, okay, yeah, 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 but we, not, we want to apply that one carefully. And specifically what they were doing is they were praying for physical healing. And as Dr. Kellogg summed it up, he said, I don't think this is proper. And he cited three different cases where they had prayed for physical healing and they knew that the healing had come. But unfortunately they died within you know, a couple of weeks. So it's kind of a short healing perhaps. Um, and Dr. Kellogg, I think, rationally said, I'm thinking that it would have been better to continue treatment instead. <laughs> um, Ellen White was not in favor of that. Uh, she was pretty cool. Actually, that's a lesson that they, that they had to learn themselves. I just, you know, just take you back. Remember, I don't remember. I'll tell you. Um, in, the, in the early years after the disappointment, there was a, there was a period of time where they, you know, every prayer for healing was answered, and then Nathaniel White came down with tuberculosis, and he wasn't healed, and it was like a crisis of faith for the little flock. You know, what's wrong? And they had to learn a hard lesson that sometimes God knows better than we do. <laughs> And so they learned that they would pray as your will be done. Let your will be done. Jones and Wagner lost sight of that in 93 for a period of time. Brought some discredit to their method, their message. Another little stumbling block that you know, people had to deal with. Okay. Ellen White, however, didn't discredit them. She said they made some mistakes. But can't you see what they're holding out to you? Can't you see? What they were holding out was a radical faith. Now, I, this is this is. I'm just going to offer this again. I'm, I'm way beyond at this point. I'm way beyond a thus saith the Lord, or even the safe confines of history. But let me just um, let me just point out something that I I think is interesting, and I think 
the more I uh, the more I watch it, and I've been watching it. I've almost watched it to the point where I think I'm guilty of watching too long, and I ought to, ought to do something. You know, it's fun to watch the Lord's work. It's probably better to get involved. <laughs> um, I would like to, uh, and this is this is this is this is my my opinion. Uh, I don't receive any uh, any reimbursement from any associated or interested parties. You know, I'm not being paid to say this. Okay. Um, I think in the last two years we have had a marvelous demonstration of the message of 1888. I think we've had the clearest demonstration of it since 100 years ago. I think we may have even had a clearer demonstration of it. Some of you may not have seen it, may not have heard about it. That's fine, I'll tell you some quick stories about it. But the kind of faith that is radical, that says, God said it, end of discussion, we move forward. And I'm sure that the gentleman involved here would be uh, aghast that I would mention his name in this context. But I'll do it, because he's not here, so he won't feel too bad. How many of you are familiar with David Gates? A few. Ah, good. You ought to become familiar with him. He is shaking in the, the circles of the movers and shakers. He is shaking in the Adventist concept of, of world outreach. Okay. Uh, I don't have time to tell you this whole story by any stretch. But David Gates is promoting a new set of principles. They're challenging. Some would say they're faulty. Thus far, God's backed the guy up pretty well. It's almost spooky. <laughs> okay. David Gates, through a long process, he didn't just wake up one morning and say, oh, wow, and we started principles. No, but, but through a long process of the Lord's leading in his life, has come to uh, espouse a, a new set of principles. He says, trying to, I'm putting words in his mouth, and he doesn't say this in so many words, but I'm doing my best. He'd do a much better job. We gotta you know, get some tapes. If you, you know, if you're a tape type person, get some tapes or something. You know, listen to it. Um, what he says is that when God commands something, He gives us the power to do it. End of discussion. When God commands, take the gospel to all the world, He gives us the power to do it. End of discussion. When it's going to cost a lot of money to do it. God says he'll cover it. End of discussion. That's pretty challenging to me. Okay. I'm not a rich guy. Okay. One of the few things I got right was when I told my wife uh, at the very beginning of our courtship, I said, listen, I don't ever plan on being rich. <laughs> I got that right. Um, <laughs> but... Um, David Gates, just, just very quickly, just uh, two quick stories. He's working down South America. He was born down there. His parents were, were missionaries. He came back, got his education in the States, back and forth, one thing or another. But eventually, he finished up a, a, you know, a tour of duty, so to speak, down in, I don't know, Caribbean or something like that. Um, he was, he was uh, like an accountant or some such, you know, some sort of a you know, bean counter type of a guy for the, the conference. That's, a, that's a, a, a perfectly honorable job. Okay? And he'd also taught computer science at Caribbean Union College, and that's a perfectly honorable job. 
But they were at the end of their term of, of service and they were ready to come back to the United States. And amongst the family, they just said, we'd like to do some real missionary work. You know, not just mission work, but missionary work. You know, we want to we want to kind of get out where the people are. And about that time, they heard of. And I'm sure I've got my details out of whack. You don't, don't you know, the, the main ideas are straight. They heard of. Um, remember the Davis Indians, right? The the Adventist missionary guy Davis who went in and the Indians. This is like 1910 or something like that, or the. the chief had had this dream and they were all keeping Sabbath and they weren't eating pigs and you know all this sort of stuff okay and that someday the, the, the white man with the black book would come and they okay well Davis was the Adventist missionary who went in there whatnot. well they they hadn't had a missionary for like 40 years they were just kind of wilting on the vine back there in the Amazon someplace and the conference leadership said uh, you know we, we, we need to find somebody to go back and work with these people but we don't have the budget for it so David talked to his wife, Becky, and his kids. He said, what do you think? They can't pay us a dime. Should we go back there? And a very perfectly logical question came up. What are we going to live on? And as a family, they were led to a startling thought. And that was, let's just go and see if God supplies our need. It's a pretty simple idea. Well, that was, what, I don't know, eight years ago? Something like that? And the Lord supplied their need. Yeah, it was fairly simple at that point. And then they realized that what they needed was an airplane. Well, David was a pilot. I think he was already a pilot. You know, something like that. They needed an airplane. So he said, well, I'll go back to the States and buy one. But you don't have any money. No. But how can I expect the Lord to pay for an airplane when I haven't picked the plane out yet? Makes sense. So he went back to the States to buy an airplane. And the money became available. And he fitted it up and flew back down. And the, the work continued to grow. Now, the specific thing that David is saying, kind of an interesting parallel. And if you hear him speak, anybody hear him at ASI recently? ASI people? Okay, yeah. He's kind of rattled ASI. He's kind of rattled ASI. Because these are business people. And David is not operating on good business principles. He's operating on radical, non-business principles. And he's the first to tell you that. And what he says, take it or leave it. He says, hey, 9-11 changed everything. He says, that's the beginning of the end. Nothing is normal now. Everything that made sense before does not make sense now. I can't, I can't help but see some parallel to you know some earlier extremist fanatic, uh, you know, um, alarmist. That's the word I wanted. There we go. Who said you know there's a Supreme Court decision that, that's really dangerous here. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Now a lot of people are saying, no, 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 you know, yeah, it was a bad thing and 3,000 people died, but it really hasn't changed anything fundamentally. And David Gates is saying it has. It has. Is he right? I don't know. Perhaps if the church follows the Lord closely, he will be right. Perhaps if we don't follow so closely, a hundred years from now we might look back and say, well, no, he was wrong. 
It's possible. Well, anyhow, uh, the work progressed. And uh, eventually he heard of, he heard of a, um, in Bolivia where he was working at the time, he heard of a satellite, um, satellite network type of a thing, TV broadcasting network. And he wanted, to, he wanted to, to reach Bolivia. And so he went to buy this TV network that covered the whole country. It was only $1.4 million. No, 1.5, I think. And hey, $100,000, piece of cake. Um, anyhow, he had no money. But he believed the Lord wanted to buy it. And so he went to these people who were very high up political types, all Catholic, by the way. And he said, this is what I want to do. And they said, okay, how much will you pay? And he said, I'll pay you 1.25 million. And they said, no, it's not for sale for that, it's for 1.5 million. And he said, oh, he'd been misinformed. He thought about it for a moment, and he said, well, 250,000? Broke anyhow. <laughs> I'll buy it, he said, I'll buy it. Kind of interesting little, little sidebar, sidebar thought here, just for what it's worth, you know. I'll buy it. And then he said, but I want you to throw in that, uh, that new uh, production facility. And they said, but that, we just built that. We're going to use that for our other, other, our other network. He says, hey, you know, I just gave you an extra 250000 All I'm asking for is a building, you know. He said, man, that's a hard bargain. Yeah, whatever. So they gave it to him, okay. 1.5 million. What would uh, what would you do if you needed to come up with a million and a half? You know, short notice, you know, whatever. Okay. Um, a long and interesting story, details of which I'll have to skip out some of. But the money came through. On the last day, the money came through. Um, I happened to uh, hear the story from the other side of the. Um, uh, it, it, as it worked out, a friend of mine was involved with the gentleman who, who provided. I mean, guy, this one guy didn't pay the whole million and a half, you know, but, but the, the money that was necessary came to. Actually, what, what it boiled down to is this last December, December 24, I think it was something like that, um, the sellers said, David, we absolutely have to have $500,000. All he'd managed to do up to that point was, was pay enough to basically keep the interest paid off. You know, he hadn't made any progress on the, on the capital. And the sellers, these, these Catholics, love this guy. And they say, David, we believe in your vision. We believe what God is trying to do here. We want this in the, in the country. This, but, but we're hurting for money. You know, and our businesses are going south, and, and, and we really can't, can't do that anymore. We need half a million by this date. Well, it just so happened that there was a gentleman out in California, someplace, I don't know where, and uh, he felt convicted that he needed to clean out some, he had some money. His wife had died. He was, you know, fairly well-to-do. And he just felt the Lord's call. And so he wanted to give $500,000. It's nice. And uh, this friend of mine who got involved with it um, ended up, it was kind of a strange thing because the guy had an, a CPA who had worked for him for like 30 years. 
And the CPA had actually locked up all his assets into accounts that effectively he had become a co-signer on. And he, re he was refusing to sign. He says, you know, oh, this is a stupid uh, over, you know, overreaction to the guy's wife's death. Uh, we have to declare him insane or something like that. He wasn't going to let the money go. You know. And it got to be a, a, a long, uh, not long in total time, but you know, a couple of days uh, involved a variety of legal threats back and forth one thing or another. And eventually they got the $500,000 out on the evening of December 23 and wired it down for the 24th. And David received that with great rejoicing and said the next morning he was, he was praying and he said, uh, Lord, I am so thankful for your provision of our needs. And, you know, I think, I think there is a certain justification in being cautious about you know, people that say, you know, the Lord talked to me, right? I'm a pretty cynical guy. I said that earlier today. You know, I, 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 I am, okay? Um, and, and I don't know exactly, you know, what went on here in this particular one, but, but he said that, you know, it was, it was kind of like, you know, the Lord was talking to him. Yeah. He said, uh, what are you thanking me for? He said, well, I'm thanking you for the $500,000. He says, is that all? He said, well, Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. And he says, I'm going to thank you for the other million that will pay it off by the end of the year. This is Christmas Day. And um, by January 1, the other million had come in. There were a lot of people watching and saying, is this guy doing something God can honor? Or is he being stupid? You know, it's easy to look at radical movements and say, that's stupid. There were a lot of people watching. And when he hit that $500,000 deadline, evidently that kind of you know, opened, uh, opened the gates a little bit. And by December, or, you know, by January 1, he had the other million. And in January, interesting, he was doing some work for the Caribbean Union on one of their broadcasting centers. And he was staying at a hotel, and across the aisle, across the hallway from him, there was a another fellow was doing some electrical engineering for them as well and this other guy introduced himself to David and said you're David Gates aren't you? He says yes. He says you are with I, I, any Hispanics here? Anybody know Spanish? You know, it's capital A, capital D, Veneer. That's the name of his broadcasting network. And somehow or the other it means he is coming or something and I never have figured out how to pronounce that. Adi Veneer or something. I, 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 really don't have that clear. But, you know, he says, you're with this operation. He says, yeah, right? He says, I need to talk to you. Well, it turns out that this fellow was not an Adventist. He was uh, a Protestant pastor. I don't remember what, you know, denomination Baptist or something, I don't know, from Brazil. And when he got David later on that night, he said, listen, I need to talk to you. He says, we have a group of 300 ministers in Brazil that have been meeting and praying and working together. And six months ago, 10 of our members all began having the same dream repeatedly. And all 10 of them were instructed that there would be a cable network or a broadcast program or something, I don't know what the terms were, that would come to Brazil 
And when it came, we were to all support it entirely, explicitly, because it was the truth. So we've looked at a lot of cable places. They're not it. But I've seen your programming this last week. I think you're it. You've got to come to Brazil. Well, the first time I could get to Brazil was two weeks later. So he shows up, and his initial interest, there was some city, and I can't pronounce the name, don't remember it anyhow, but you know, some city with uh, you know a few million people. Um, he was going to buy, he, his understanding was he was going to buy uh, a, a broadcast tower right there over this, on the hill overlooking the city. Well, that's, that's worth doing, you know, a few million people. It's, uh, it's cheap evangelism, you know. So he went there, and it, he shows up for this meeting, and it turns out he's got, you know, like all the dignitaries of this Brazilian state, you know, uh, the, the, effectively the governor or whatever, and, and the mayor of the town, and this turned out to be a pretty high-profile operation. And he found out that the station that he was, that these guys, uh, these 300 non-Adventist ministers wanted him to buy was not just a single station, but that somehow or the other, according to Brazilian law, carried the, imp the implicit or explicit rights to, again, an entire network that covered something like 80-some percent of the country. And so he sits down at the table to talk to these guys, and they say, well, so you're interested in the... Uh, in, in this station, he says, well, maybe so. How much is it? He said, 1.25 million. Been there before. <laughs> he didn't have a dime. You know? But he prayed, and he said, God, do I, you know, do, I do this again? And he felt confident that was the thing to do and so he looked up and he said I'll take it and they said what he said I'll take it just like that he says just like that I'll take it put his hand across the table shook the man's hand and he said it's sold right yeah it's he said what do I have to do so that it is not on the market you understand it's sold uh, just a handshake Shakes hands again. Thirty seconds later, the cell phone rang with another outfit that was offering six hundred thousand dollars more. The buyer or the seller said, "I'm sorry, it's already sold." Um, the phone rang so many times in the next two hours of their discussions, they eventually just shut the phones off from all these people trying to buy that radio or that TV network. Um, Here's my point. When God's work closes, I suspect it will require a radical faith. I think David Gates, and he's, he's a human being, you know, and, and if, I've only met him once in my life. I don't really know that much about the guy, okay? I've been following him, and I've been following him rather closely since I first heard of what he's been doing, but I don't know him as a person. But I see in the principles he's espousing, and probably espousing in, in a faulty manner. Okay, I, I, I told you I was cynical. You know, people don't do things right all the time. Come on, the guy's going to mess up. Okay, he's going to do something stupid. He's going to do something where people, anybody who wants to, can look at it and say, "That was stupid, David. That was really stupid." You know, I don't, I don't doubt that it'll happen. It hasn't yet. It hasn't yet. And I'm thinking to myself, 
you know, this guy sounds to me a lot like Jonas Wagner. With the promulgation of a radical acceptance of the authority of God. Because that's what David's doing. He's saying, God's in charge. When he says it, the issue's closed. And he's already said it. Yeah. Take the gospel of the world. It's an, interesting, it's an interesting turn of events. It's an interesting turn of philosophy. It's really shaking up ASI. You know? and, and I have a high respect for ASI. I'm not, I'm not, you know, this is not a gotcha. You know, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a level of challenge that we really haven't seen before in my lifetime. Now, the easiest way to measure this is, is in dollars. Yeah. That's why we use money is because it's such an easy medium of exchange, right? It beats the socks off a barter. But there are many other ways, I suspect, that the same radical commitment to God can be demonstrated. I hope there are, because I don't have any money. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not particularly well off, let's put it that way. You know, it's never been my thing. Okay. But can we do, can we not do the same thing with our lives and our, our commitment? Do we have to take care of ourselves? Or can we depend on God to take care of us if we do His work? That's a pretty radical idea. Do I need a safety net other than God? Whatever that may be. Now we can be stupid. Right? There's faith, there's presumption. I, you know, bear that in mind. Okay? But the message of 1888, perhaps the most, perhaps the thing that, that made it hardest to get across was its entire focus on, on the issue of salvation. Um, that's such an intangible thing. It's kind of a self, I don't mean this in a, in a bad way, but it's, 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 it's a self-focused thing. You know, am I saved? As, you know, what is the process of salvation, etc., etc., etc. I see in David Gates and others, I've seen others too. His ideas are catching on. It's an interesting concept. It's an interesting thing. You know, it's not often that something new comes and, and shakes up the church, a, a new concept. And I see this as a new concept. Um, I think it maybe has an advantage because it's, it's others-focused rather than self-focused, if, if that makes sense. You know? um, it's a lot of things. I, I, I hope, in a certain sense, that I've raised questions in your mind. I hope I've given you some raw material that you can mow on for yourselves uh, and maybe make some applications of and do something that will be helpful and at least interesting and useful to you. But I hope also that I've raised questions because there's a real basic issue that's still kind of hanging fire in this whole thing. And that is, what did happen to the message of 1888? 
It was the beginning of the loud cry. When will the end come? And what will it take? And is it some doctrinal thing? Do I need to continue? You know? Elder Wheeland. High respect for the man. But you know what? It's kind of an interesting thing. He has for years struggled with trying to explain his understanding of it. And, and, and he's tried different ways of, of expressing it. And there's always an inherent intangibility, can't get his hand on it type of thing. You know, trying to explain what the doctrinal difference between Jones and Wagner and these other guys was. You know? For those of you who may have followed along with, with him. Now, some people have taken great offense at him. I, I, I never have. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, there was the idea of corporate repentance. And people wrangled that one around for, for 20 years. What does he mean by corporate repentance? And he would, he would try and explain it. And I'm sure he had a concept, but it was always this, this kind of vagueness to it. You know, and he's trying to get this idea across. Okay? And then there was the, the idea of um, it's easier to be saved than it is to be lost. Okay? And he kind of used that metaphor to try and express what he understood the core of 1888 to be. Easier saved than it is to be lost. What does that mean? You know, and people went round and round on that. And, and nobody could ever get a handle on the thing. It was so intangible and, and ill-defined. And um, you know, then there's uh, another metaphor of expression he's used is the, um, the concept of uh, you know, the forensic justification for the entire race and everybody's saved until they do something to be lost type of a thing, you know, and people have wrangled that around, and a lot of people have, have argued these things back and forth, and there's been claims of, he's a heretic, and you know, he's right, and, da, da, da. and there's, there's been some division created, you know, fortunately not as much as, you know, some might have, you know, some other things might have kicked up. But, you know, I, I, I look at it and I say, any or all of those things may have, have some element of truth to them, but they're also intangible. If we look at it from a little different perspective, which I'm not saying is the only perspective, but if we look at it and we say, you know what, 1888 was about the authority of God. And faith, radical faith, accepts God's authority as an absolute. And that's what it will take in the final analysis to believe that you're forgiven. Okay, we talked about that yesterday, right? In the time of trouble. It will take that level of faith to, to, to believe the righteousness by faith part of it. I'm glad that that element is all there. But today, we can easily take that, that matter of God's authority and apply it in, in, in a thousand other areas. When God says this, whatever it may be, is that the final authority for me? Or do I have to you know, double check it with the uh, you know, latest opinions of science or latest opinions of economics, the latest opinions of uh, whatever. Yeah. I'll leave that with you. You've been very patient. And unless you are superhuman, you're ready to stand up and do something different rather than sit there and listen to me drone on. Um, so thank you very much. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, I've done a very imperfect job of trying to present some ideas today. We are thankful that you are perfect. We pray that we would accept your perfection, have faith and confidence in it, accept your power, and have faith and confidence in that, accept your love, and have faith and confidence in that. And that having accepted these things, it will change us. It will change what we do.
and how we do it. We pray that you would also be our wisdom and that we might have faith and confidence in your perfect understanding and that you will guide us as surely as we will follow. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to move forward, to move forward with a radical confidence, not to move forward blindly, not to move forward as the sport of the various deceptions as they blow hither and yon about us, but that we might do your will and do your work and trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.